0: This is a podcast. It's called DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm an average DevOps person who also makes popular Docker and Kubernetes courses on the interwebs. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show where I hang out with guests and we answer your questions from the YouTube live chat. You can find out more information, including show notes at brettfisher.com podcast. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon page where you can follow all my updates on everything I'm creating and doing in the world of DevOps. And if you like my stuff, you can support me with a small monthly membership for exclusive benefits. There's something new every week. And please consider supporting me with my coffee and bourbon habits at patreon.com slash Brett Fisher. It's March 31st when I'm recording and launching this particular podcast, which is recorded back in January of 2020. So right now, a lot of us are in lockdown. In fact, the majority of the world is. And it's interesting because it seems like a lot more people have time to take my courses and review my stuff because everything's seeing a steep incline in usage. We're getting a lot more questions, a lot more people interacting in the course and watching videos. So it's great that we can turn some of this bad situation into a great opportunity for learning and having a few moments to digest some of the stuff out there. So I'm glad you're listening. In this episode, which I recorded in January with Gianluca Arbizano, he's a Docker Captain and Site Reliability Engineer at Influx Data, and we talk about open-source projects for monitoring and observability in containers and Kubernetes, and I hope you enjoy it. Now on with the show. Let's talk about that continuous profiling, because there are some people on this channel like myself that aren't hardcore developers. What does profiling uh, really do for us?
1: Yeah, let's say that you have a running application. Let's think about Go. So you have a binary and you start it and you have to know how the runtime is performing. So which function are taking more memory than what they should take or which function is taking all the CPU and so on. So the idea is that you have to get this information out from the binary. And uh, profiling is, the tool you are looking for. So there are profilers for a lot of different languages. I used one in PHP and the one that I'm working right now is Go. And Go exposed profiler, profiling tool called Profefe, sorry, P-Proof. And you can expose it via HTTP. So every time you call an HTTP handler, you get profile back. And you can store this profile, uh, for example, has a turbo. And the idea is that you can read it and analyze it later when you need it. So let's say that you have a bunch of application running and one of them is, and you see uh, looking at your dashboard or you get an alert about from like from one of those because it's getting like 80% of the CPU for the server and it is not supposed to do it. So what do you do next? You can get a profile and you can visualize it and you can ask for the top five offender function in uh, memory order. So you would get the top five functions that are using more more memory in, in the lifecycle of your binary. And the problem is that you never know when you are going to need this profile. Maybe you will need it when you are in front of your laptop. So you can do the seer command, and you can get the tarball and analyze it later. But sometimes, or really often, uh, you are not in front of your laptop or even if you are, you're doing your work and you don't know that you're gonna have a memory or CPU issue. So the idea here is to have an infrastructure that continuously take those profiles for you and take them, in, take them all in order and manageable via API. So you can get them you can filter them based on, I don't know, the host name or based on the binary name or if you are a Kubernetes guy, you can filter them by pod name or based on the service name that you have for the the container. And when you have all those profiles, you can merge them together in a specific time range and ask for those information. So that's mainly the topic here. And there is an open source project called Profefe that is made by Vladimir, that is his maintainer. I discovered that and I find it was very cool. So I, because it serves like an API layer that you can use to push and retrieve profiles. Other than that, just for the fact that we use Kubernetes a lot internally at Influx Data, I took the chance to write a small bridge between Kubernetes and Profefe. So what is called a kube-profefe, because I'm very original. It <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's either going to, you're either going
0: to call it kube or ka's-profefe. So <laughs> one of those choices, right? You You don't have a lot.
1: That's true, and yeah. I thought about that intensively, and I did yeah. cube this. Time. Yeah,
0: cube, or is it cube? <laughs> <laughs> how do you pronounce? How do you pronounce your cube?
1: <laughs> I think yeah, hey, that's even another yeah stuff to guess. So yeah, I mean this is it's a very simple collector, so I run it as a cron job in my Kubernetes cluster, and based on the annotation on of, on your pod, as you can see, there is the annotation like enabled equals true that tells uh, the collector that 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 pod has a profile and can be grabbed and you can also put the service name and the service name is just an identifier that you can use to filter profiles later when you're retrieving them and you can use port and path to configure where to grab those profiles and there is also a kubectl plugins that gives you a little bit more capabilities about retrieving and filtering and pushing profiles yeah that's Uh, cool yeah makes it easier yeah Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when you, you know, you can capture them locally from your kubectl and store them into Profefe or store them locally, or you can have this uh, cron job that runs and keeps them uh, and download them. For example, at at Influx, we get profiles from all the pods every 10 seconds and we store them into Profefe. And we sample them later or we delete them when they are too old, like over three months.
0: Wow, yeah, this is really cool. So uh, yet another example of taking something that we traditionally did by hand, right? Like capturing a profile was painful, <laughs> and now it's essentially a cube control
1: command line. Yeah, I mean it's. I'm driven by my my boringness, so my laziness, let's say. So when something makes me too bored or I'm too lazy to do it, I just tend to. Try to automate it. So I was very like bored by my colleagues asking me or the SRE team to get profiles. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna give them a way to do it by themselves. So I would do something, you know, m- more useful for the company or for myself. You know, I work from home, so sometimes I take a walk or I do gardening. So it's good to have time.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it seems like a, your your theme for a while now has been around. Testing, extending, basically focusing on making the tooling around your dev experience in containers easier. That's you've yeah. been on that that yeah. trip
1: for a while. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a very good trip. And what I like about it is that it it gives me the um, opportunity to uh, speak with people and not with tools or technology. So the most important stuff we had to fix has a engineer is the workflow that our team or our company needs to have or develop. Fortunately for us, we have a lot of those APIs exposed by tools that we use every day. So even Docker, Docker, everybody does Docker has a CLI and it runs command and pushes images. But behind that tiny Docker CLI, there is a word uh, that you can use and you can, you know, incorporating your application or incorporating your framework to do something even better even cooler than docker run that is already very cool so (laughs) and that's what i I try to do you know i tend to think about the workflow or how my colleagues uh, are happy or should work and i glue together softwares that helps me to get there so yeah and what i you know what I'm doing with Kubernetes and what I did with, with Profet Fefe, or what I did with Test Containers goes along these lines. So Test Containers is an organization, let's say, that has a bunch of different projects on different languages. So you can see the Go one, but uh, the main one is in Java. I discovered it when I was working on Zipkin, that it's a, a popular tracer, and they use Test Containers Java to do their integration tests. Yeah. And it's a very, I mean, it's a very easy but you know useful tool. You can programmatically configure your um, the environment your test needs inside the test itself with real code. And I'm I come from a developer development background before even doing DevOps or SRE, so I like code and I think code is powerful and you know the ability to programmatically as i said write and spin up your environment it gives you the ability to orchestrate it in a better way and to monitor it in a better way and to wait for your underlying services and databases to be up and running in a with much more control and granularity yeah. uh, so i'm i'm thinking about it in mind comparing with docker compose because that's usually how i saw people doing um, integration tests in CI. So there was, they had a Yammer they did Docker Compose that brings up all the dependencies. And uh, in some way, they have to wait for the all the services to be up and running. And this process can be flaky and can drive to confusion or a long wait uh, strategy that maybe is not needed. Uh, but if your container is inside your test, you have much more granularity. So for example, in in test containers, we have something called wait strategy. So when you declare, when you ask for a container, you can declare what you what to wait for. So you can wait for a log to appear in the stream, or you can wait for a port to be open, or you can wait for a HTTP request to be to succeed, or to get an error, or whatever, because you are in the code, so you can write whatever you are looking for. And it's reusable, so you can create a function that spin out a bunch of containers. And you know the and we use the docker socket the docker TCP API so for us what the, what test containers does is uh, be focused on the workflow be focused on the API that developers are uh, usually happy um, to use when they write tests and I think it's very it's a very powerful mindset so. yeah
0: I'm just I'm seeing how much activity there is on the Java one <laughs> <laughs> Obviously used a lot. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, have you talked yeah. about I feel like you've done a talk on test
1: containers. That was my talk at DockerCon. Okay. Yeah. So they can probably Google yeah. I, they, yeah. yeah, they can Google write write maintainable integration tests on YouTube and there is my my talk there. There is also a blog post in the Docker uh, website about it. So I'm yeah, I'm trying to write whatever I no new release or new features. The way I'm so passionate about it is because when I discovered the test containers Java uh, version, I decided to port it in Go because I work every day in Go. And so I'm currently one of the maintainers for the Go version of the library.
0: Right. I'm looking up your uh, writing maintainable integration tests.
1: Yeah, you know you can you can even even with Go or Java. Obviously the capabilities for those libraries depends on the language that you're using. So some libraries has a better coverage, other libraries are younger and has less features. But for example, the, I have experience with Java and Go, and both of them, for example, supports build. Uh, so you can build your image inside your test. So let's say that you, have a, you need to test your code with a specific set of version for your MySQL database, because you have some tricks and some stuff that you have to do with different MySQL databases. What you can do is you can build those MySQL databases images in your tests and reuse them as you need it, with the configure you need it, with the, you know, modules you, ha- you have to use and so on. And so these mm, methodologies really gives you all the flexibility that you, you need. So that's, that's what I am very happy about.
0: Yeah. I put the links to that stuff in chat. So if you're watching this on YouTube, the link to Docker's blog is on there. It's titled Let's see. Right? Maintainable integration tests with Docker. And then the Gianluca's YouTube video for DockerCon twenty nineteen on the same topic is also put into chat. So okay. you know, there's a is a lot it's amazing, I still think how many companies I run into that are doing very little to no testing on production code. It, it, it's one of those things where we don't really talk about it in the industry very much because we, we we feel like a lot of us that go to conferences and stuff, we're always sort of on the leading edge of things. And it's a, it's a in a lot of those circles, it's assumed, right? It's assumed you're testing. It <laughs> you assumes you're, yeah, you're CI testing.
1: It, yeah, it's also very different how do we write application compare with, you know, a few years ago. We, you know, when I started to work every... Uh, almost everybody was uh, speaking about unit tests and we had to mock stuff and we had to uh, you know, iterate on those unit tests uh, keep the mocks up to date and so on. Uh, and I think it's reasonable, it's great. I I love to write unit tests and I think you should do it. So I'm not advertising about, against that. Uh, you should have both. But those days we write code that has a lot more integration with external services because we write microservices. So we are always reaching to something that may fail or may change and integration tests are available to test with a real application so you have you need to have both in place and the fact that we can have an easy way to create to spin up those environment we'll see i I hope we simplify the 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 job of writing those tests, so we will write more of them more stable and so on so yeah that that's definitely something that Needs to be developed, an habit that needs to be developed. And I think that's why testing frameworks are very, you know, they are a silver bullet. When you have a good one, you can cover all your application in an easy way and make it very solid.
0: Yeah. There's not a lot of people out there that are passionate about talking about testing. So I think. For all developers everywhere, I would like to thank you for all of your efforts <laughs> to make Anytime. it easier in containers. Because I think, yeah, I think it's one of the big things is we, people move to the containers. They, the the, te- the CI part, it's one thing to get up the the infrastructure set up and then to learn that okay, I need to now test in containers. But to get that as streamlined and as automated as, as it was before you had containers, it typically takes teams a while to figure all those, you know, integrations out. How do the how do these Apps talk to each other when they're now in separate containers, and that there's a lot going on there. And how do I capture the logs out of my my testing and you know for storing in the other systems later? It, there's so many different issues there that the projects I work on they that they come they hit all related to testing infrastructure. That usually, especially if you ha- if you have old code that's been around a while, like you could you could easily have like a decade worth of Jenkins scripts. <laughs> That you have to figure out how do I make all of these now work in containers? So yeah,
1: I think it's also like, as you said, uh, con- Docker and containers really change how we do CI. So I think it's uh, a lot of a lot of companies now has uh, or runs builds inside a container. So usually they do it like doing Docker in Docker. So your your container where you run the test already has Docker in some way reachable. So as soon, the onboarding for a library like test containers would be like just one second because the Docker socket is already there. The API is already reachable. So you just need to you know start to use it.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's hop on this other thing I wanna talk about. The extending Kubernetes report. So O'Reilly has this free report that you wrote. If anyone wants to get it, I'm gonna throw the link into chat. Tell me about uh, what's in this report, rather than me just reading the web page.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, as I said, I'm very into the idea that you should do a lot more with the tools you are using. So we use a lot of like dependencies or services, like Kubernetes or Sentry for our errors or Datadog or whatever for our monitoring. And all those services serves API. And when you are able to glue them together to solve the workflow you are willing to use to be successful you will really feel the power of all of those tools so i when i when we work with kubernetes i tend to remember that so i know that kubernetes one of the like important and great features that i think kubernetes has is its ability to be an api gateway so kubernetes other than be a very like solid scheduler a very good scalability tools and orchestrator for your containers, it's also an API gateway because it gives you an API that you can use and you use every day with the QCTL. This book is about how to use the hook points that Kubernetes gives you to do something that really is what uh, you need in your company. And it's really hard from my experience to take a project from the outside, like the one I did, like let's take Prof and say, okay, I'm gonna use Kube Prof now. In my opinion, it's very hard to onboard a project and to make it successful in a different context. Because every context, every team, every company has already its own um, set of services, set of pipelines, set of mindsets and tools that it uses. So the fact that you move your uh, mindset from using the tool, to developing it in your tools that you use every day makes a difference. So Kubernetes can really be the center for it because it has a very powerful authentication method. So you can have different contexts and you can manage different you know, Kubernetes cluster and you have a QCTL and you can write QCTL plugins that really works similar to how the Docker plugin works. So if you know about the Docker CLI, you can write plugins for it as well. And the way it works for the kubectl is just that you need a binary that has a name like kubectl dash something. And as soon as you place this binary inside your path, you can call it via kubectl, like kubectl, blah, 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 with the name of the you gave you gave the binary. So, in this super easy way, you already have, you already merging workflow for the end user. So, you made all the effort to install Kubernetes, to onboard your teams, your teammates, and your company on using these gigantic tools. And when you need small automation scripts, you open Bash and you do your Bash scripts. This for me is very portable, very hard to onboard and to share. So other than doing that, what you can do is just to write a Kubernetes CTL plugin. So you will just ask your colleagues to download it, and you will be sure to have a a friendly workflow that doesn't require a context switch, because the kubectl is the entry point, and you know that it's there. So this book contains tricks and hooks for Kubernetes that you can use during your daily work to run... Small applications or even big application that that leverage Kubernetes API. Those hooks are custom resource definition. So when you do kubectl get pod, pod is a resource. But you can have custom resource definition. So let's say that you are you are you know you you're using uh, root fifty-three in AWS and you can use the Amazon CLI and do and create your resource or you can uh, go and click on the Amazon CL, on Amazon UI to create a new DNS record. Or you can create a custom resource definition called root53DNS record or whatever. And you can do kubectl create root53DNS root record. And you are bringing a very far away API into the Kubernetes workflow. And what it means it means that you have the authentication mechanism provided by Kubernetes because Kubernetes has its authentication method. So the cubes, you can say, okay, those three people in the team ops can create root53 DNS record because I give to them the permission, but uh, the development team can only visualize them. And you can do it without uh, just creating the custom resource definition and leveraging the what Kubernetes uh, brings you. So authentication, authorization, audit logs, and so on. So it's you know, and custom resource definition are just one entry point, one hooks for Kubernetes. Kubectl are another one. Kubectl plugins are another one. But uh, there are also shared informers. So you can um, watch for events happening inside Kubernetes, like pod creation or service deletion or replica set scale, and so on. And you can do stuff based on those events. So there are a lot of them. Even, you know, the, that report is, like, um, maybe 35, 40 pages, but it can be, like, way longer. Right. It could be a book. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, be a book.
0: it could be a It could be a course, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it was a conversation I was just having in a local, a local community Slack that we have. People were talking about containers and the operator SDK that I think CoreOS puts out. And then b- people were talking about basically all the different SDKs and helper tools to get you started on customizing every part of Kubernetes, right? And whether it's the command line or it's extending the API itself or, yeah. And, and it's cool that the, the the biggest challenge now is which which ones are you going to use and which ones are you going to not use? And I, I feel like at this point, we're going to get into a situation where there is so much going on that it it's i'm afraid that it's going to cause kubernetes and like your setup to be a little bit rigid and maybe not necessarily fragile but you know if you've got so many plugins and so many api tools and all these different operators that you've added in your cluster now you have to test everything with every new version right it's uh yeah
1: it's gonna become a work
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not let's hope not but you know it's 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 infectious. To I mean, once you start extending Kubernetes and you realize how how much it can adapt to your workflow with just a little bit of effort, it it's easy. I think to go overboard. And one of the challenges I have with with uh, projects, I think just containers in general, because now what we're dealing with right is Docker started with this API of oh yeah you can it be like it would be like if you know system D or any standard system process manager defaulted to having an H, a rest based API, right? And now suddenly we're, th- this is now the default. And now we all assume if you're going to create a systems or a cluster or cloud management tool, it's going to have some sort of API to it. And we're all going to be able to use that, um, presuming it's, it's rest, the, the challenge now is like, okay, every one of your d- tools depends on versions of every one of your tools. And you ended up in this weird scenario where I, you can't change anything because it's all dependent on certain versions. I ran into this today, this morning, actually, because uh, Docker Desktop is on Kubernetes 115, Minikube is defaults to doing 117, And the command line is only supposed to go, I think it's one version above or below, right? And so cube control is complaining on my machine and now I have to worry about versioning my cube control command line for which cluster I'm working on. <laughs> which yeah. I, there's tools to help me with that. And it, we all start going down this road I think of wanting all the buttons, we want all the features and the toggles and the things and then pretty soon we find out that nothing can move forward and I'm I'm worried about that. I I don't lose sleep at night about it, but uh, it's a concern yeah, of I mine. Mean,
1: that, that, that's why I think we should really be focused on the workflow over than everything else like the tools and the operators and kubernetes and docker are utilities to get to your workflow your workflow in the fastest and uh, most friendly and usable way that you can think about but you know they can come and go they can become too complex or not enough complex but your your workflow will always be you know easy to understand or possible to figure out. And if you have, you no, know, I think that API, API really gives you this flexibility, is the layer of flexibility. You can glue them and use them and change them even without, without really changing the end workflow. Obviously, right. if you keep yourself and you lock yourself into the Docker CLI or in the kubectl CLI without thinking about why you're using it, you will never be able to, you know, change it or it will be a very big effort because you have to change your mindset and mindset are way too hard to to, to change that tools so if you if you can get over the, the, the tool yeah. and think about what we are using the tool for maybe it will be also easy to fix some of those concerns
0: yeah well and i think saying no i mean obviously <laughs> these like these tools are all great but at some point with other tools not not your tools, but with other tools, at some point we have to say, okay, just because I can doesn't mean I necessarily should, because now if if I'm adding some sort of integration, this is potentially going to be a problem later. For everything, everything we put into production or or put on our machine as part of our workflow is now something we have to maintain, right? And I think we easily forget that. And I, I now have to care about versions. I just dealt with this the other day, because I was working on a project. I, I have a ghost blog and i was i'm back and forth between using ghost in containers and then ghost itself has this command line utility that's not in a container that you can use locally to easily manage your blog setup and but that particular localized non docker version cares about your node version on your machine and i haven't had to care about node versions on my machine in years like you know we've been lucky that for years now even the 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 unstable releases of node have been good enough at providing their feature set that on your local dev machine for just local utility use, you never had to worry about it. If you, if you care about a specific version, you run it in Docker. So I started running, I started trying these local command line tools out and I immediately started hitting all these dependency problems with my local setup. And I thought, this is why I love Docker. Like I never had to worry about this in Docker. I should just stop and go back to Docker.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Our, our, our machines, just like our servers can get fragile the more we add on them. So I don't think Docker necessarily had that uh, problem because we didn't we didn't try to add so much complexity on top of Docker in terms of its API as we're now doing with Kubernetes. And the Kubernetes API, while it's stable and there are versions, so that's good, and they're changing slower over time, and that's good. We've got stability checks that are a little bit better than three or four years ago when it was a little wild, wild west. But yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm waiting for us to have this show where we we in a year where we talk about how do you move your how do you upgrade your Kubernetes cluster when you have <laughs> 25 operators and 10 plugins on the command line that you need
1: and yeah it gets a little crazy yeah. yeah it's gonna be yeah it's gonna be a mess that's why we need to be pragmatic so we need to really think deeply about what we are installing why we are installing it yeah. and always like thinking about. Not an escape route because we will always, you know, we can escape from everything. So at some point we will have to pick something. But you know, having in mind that it's a tool and it can change, and we need to be flexible on it and accept that. But yeah. yeah, I think you know, even Kubernetes, the Kubernetes ecosystem is gigantic, and when you look at it, you know, w- without having your target or without, you know, having your star to follow. And um, it can become really, really complicated. But as soon as you have a real, you know, a real use case or something, a real environment where you start to have constraints, uh, because you start, to know, you start to know that you have to use AWS. So you start to cut everything that is not AWS related. And you start to see that you are going to scale. You are not going to scale over like, you know, five clusters with a thousand nodes so you are going to move you know even deeper or you know you are going to move out what doesn't brings you there so at some point you 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 need to be good at cutting as you say to say no and to say yes only to what uh, brings you to the end goal otherwise you know thinking about the deep ecosystem all the time um, will won't give you will brings you to the end goal
0: yeah well on the, on that topic in all of your working with extending like, kubernetes and and the testing tools. Is there something that is, is there is there something built into these SDKs where before you upgrade a cluster? Because I've not run into this where I've had to test a bunch of different like plugins and operators and CRDs and stuff like that. Is there something that allow that I, is out there that allows us to other than just installing it on a new version of a cluster and seeing if it works? Is there a, a testing
1: framework for that? In the SDK, yeah, there is, and that's a very good question <laughs> because yeah, there is a project that is called Kind, mm-hmm. and and it it stays for Kubernetes inside Docker, so that's that's what it is, and it is developed by the Kubernetes SIG Testing, and this is what they use to run tests on a Kubernetes cluster. So as you can see, it is is a CLI, but even better it is a library that you can embed in your code. Obviously, the library is in Go. So okay. if you are working with another like application, it will be, it, another language, it will be a little bit more complicated. But I, I tried, and I think I will get back to it at some point. I tried to embed it in... Uh, in test container, so in, you can you can use the same you know flavor to start one Kubernetes cluster. But yeah, the idea is that when you you know if you look at it, you see that there are uh, functions that you in Go that you can use to create cluster. And when you create cluster, you can get the kubectl client, and from there you have a client that you can pass through your function and test it over so you can also you can when you create a cluster a test kind cluster you can as you can see you can specify the node uh, version the the image is just the kubernetes uh, version so you can spin up more more of them and run your your test function over multiple versions of, of kubernetes it's a very good way it's a solid way because it is used by uh, kubernetes itself so it's not a you know toy project that somebody did but the purpose for it was to make the pipeline for Kubernetes more flexible, and I think I have some spare code, but I don't, I, can, I don't remember what it is. So maybe I will maybe follow up with you so you can share it uh, later. But I tried to make a test that spin up some containers with test container with kind and you know send a bunch of requests to see to check this and do assertion on the output. So I think that's a very good way to do. Testing in Kubernetes. If you if you're using Go, if yeah. you are not using it, I I don't know. But I can't <laughs> yeah. I can't exclude it.
0: Well, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I guess at least you you could. I mean, if you're if you're testing in something like Docker Compose, or if you're testing already in Kubernetes, then. You know this this stuff runs as containers, so you wouldn't be able to do it in the same library, but you could at least cross do it cross container. That's something. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 You can always you know run yeah run the kind command has a exec in every language, so you can do OS exec whatever in your test it would work. You can also create more container, more more clusters with different names, so you can look at them by name in your test. You know, the, the, those kind of issues, those kind of mindset are the one that I'm trying to, like the test containers removes, because you don't need to have, you don't need to think about all those stuff like having an isolated environment for every test anymore, because it is all managed by the fact that you are creating the environment inside your test. Right. So every test has its own one. And you can also do parallelization. That is a very, you know, good way to decrease the, the you know, how long the the CI takes to run. This is usually a very big concern when you do integration tests because it can get slow quickly.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's another challenge. Parallelization is also a tough challenge, but probably a topic for another day. All right. So we have talked a lot about all the cool projects that Gianluca is working on. And now I think it's time to look at some questions. I've been scanning the question list. I'm just going to throw some out here. I'm going to skip around. I'm not going to really go in order. <laughs> so there was a conversation here. Around, these aren't all related to our topics, but I'll talk about them anyway. Biker's asking, "I want, I want Docker Desktop for my whole team, but this gives me pause about recommending. I run Swarm Mode every few months. Docker will crash and requires reset the factory default on the Mac. When I try this, it goes into an infinite loop of Docker needs privileged access. I can't get past this point. I even uninstalled Docker desktop completely and reinstalled the fresh download. Okay. So, uh, one, why can't <laughs> it's a long question? Why can't I completely remove Docker on Mac? I do not know. I recommend reaching out to me in the, or one of us in the Docker community Slack, and we can help you with a bug report and getting the, you know, getting at least some sort of response from maybe the team. If you're, if this is happening across multiple Macs, like if it's something on your Mac, I've never had this problem. So I don't know if Gianluca, I think you're on a Mac, right? Or are you on
1: Linux? No, I'm a Linux guy. Yeah, so
0: you don't have these problems, but I have I,
1: other problems. So I don't have sounds. I don't have webcam. I don't have a lot of stuff.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, you got problem. you got, you got drivers. You got drivers. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so, yeah, I, I don't think this is systemic. Obviously, there's millions of people using Docker desktop. So I'm not, I wouldn't be too concerned that it's some sort of fundamental problem with Docker Docker desktop. So, yeah, so we can help with that. Uh, I think just reach out to me either in the Docker community Slack or in Docker Mastery Slack or somewhere else. And I can give you some advice on what to do about that. Number two, what causes this? I've not seen this problem, so I don't know. How do I prevent? I've asked Docker support several times, but now with Mirantis, it is useless as they won't, as they don't support Docker. So you can try, so Docker Desktop, this is a couple of things we should point out. Docker Desktop, which is kind of related because it does do Kubernetes and it's what I use all day for Kubernetes. But let's see, it's github.com slash Docker slash for Mac. All right, so if you're, I don't know if this is the support you're talking about, but the for Mac repo is where you can put in issues. Obviously, there's lots of issues there. But if you ping me in there at Brett Fisher, and you give really good details on recreating this issue, we can try to recreate it, see what happens. Yeah, so no problem. We can help. All right, next question. I think that was kind of related to the Docker-Mirantis split. So people actually started talking about that. Uh, I wanted to address that because we did talk about this in November. You can go back to in this channel to a November show all about the Docker split and find all the details about what's basically the the rule is, is that all the the open source stayed with Docker, and all of the private closed sourced, you know, paid products went with Mirantis. So Docker Desktop stayed with Docker, Docker Engine, Docker Compose, Docker Swarm, all of those things stayed with Docker. And Mirantis is still selling the enterprise suite, which includes docker engine the ucp and dtr and all that and swarm and kubernetes that's built in the official statement from uh, morantis is that they'll provide at least 2 years of support for swarm but the swarm team is one person and we don't really know yet if morantis is providing them more people or more time to work on swarm so at this point if you're on swarm there's no reason to leave swarm And if you like Swarm, keep using it. Like two years is a long time. We, you know, I'm not, I'm not. What's changed for me is I'm not going to clients and then telling them they should implement Swarm as a new project. If they've already got it, I'm not telling them to leave. It works great. We've got years of paid support, and then hey, maybe the community will pick it up after that and just keep it, you know, relatively bug free. So we don't know yet. I'm in a holding pattern. I think like the rest of us, I don't know if Gene Luca, if you have a different thought on that.
1: I just do the same. So what runs, runs.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's nice to even have a company that says they're going to provide paid support for an open source project because most don't. So I already look at it as like, this is better than most open source projects, which are always in some sort of, is the is the maintainer going to give up <laughs> after I implement <laughs> this tool? Like that happens a lot with yeah. the tools, at least I, I feel like I use. So yeah, uh, Swarm is open source. It's called SwarmKit. It's part of the Docker engine, which is also open source. It's it's basically added in as a library into the Docker engine. So when you type in Docker swarm init, that's technically using a library underneath called swarm kit, that's all open source. So you can just look up swarm kit on GitHub and you can add issues. You can see the PRs that are happening, a little bit of work still ha- still happening in that repo. So let's, let's hope that it stays around because there are tons of us, including a lot of the Docker captains that like it for its ease of use and for simple, small things. We we talk a lot about Kubernetes. And of course, since I've just launched two different Kubernetes courses in the last six months, I talk a lot about Kubernetes now, but that doesn't mean that these tools are like a panacea. Like every tool has its uses. So a common question here is on which one to use. And I would say, go buy one of my courses because I go at length talking about that in Docker Mastery. It's
1: also also very important to remember that the experience that we developed the community developed with Swarm made Kubernetes a better tool because all the join mechanism that Kubernetes now has that is the one that made the made it easier to use comes from the Swarm experience and all the you know interfaces like the CNI, CS like the network interface or the container storage interface or the container runtime interface all comes from this from the open so for the, from the fact that there are a lot of different tools a lot of different developers a lot of different mindset a lot of different needs and so i think it's variable it's also very very variable to keep it around for that and to leverage these uh, tools and these uh, yeah codes.
0: yeah i mean the docker engine isn't going anywhere and swarm is a part of it so unless docker you know pulled it out at some future date which i'm i'm sure that could happen but it's at this point, it feels unlikely just because it's there and it works. I wouldn't expect a lot of new features uh, unless, you know, it's one of those things where the, a majority of Docker's enterprise customers were paying to use Swarm and were using Swarm as their orchestrator. They might also be using Kubernetes, but they were, a majority of them were definitely using Swarm even during the split. So if those customers keep paying Morantis and Mirantis sees that that's a business opportunity, they might consider continuing to use it. So I would say if you're paying for it, definitely reach out to Mirantis and say, hey, we're using Swarm. Don't kill it. <laughs> keep keep adding features. I, I know uh, the team was talking about using jobs or building jobs for it, uh, cron job support, and then also hopefully some better storage support for the, the CSI kind of stuff that Kubernetes uses. So let's hope. Let's hope for that. Next question. It's a pretty good one off the wall. What are your views on securing Dockerized Node.js apps using Let's Encrypt SSL? Well, Let's Encrypt is great as an SSL opportunity. If you can use Let's Encrypt, not everyone can because of certain requirements, whether that's because it's an internal server and you can't get it remotely accessible from a firewall, you know? But if it's an app on the internet, sure. I wouldn't put Let's Encrypt into Node.js though. I would use something like Traffic as a front-end proxy to automatically do it for me you can look up traffic. Traffic has Let's Encrypt support built in, and it will just go get your certs and provide proxying for the Node.js app, and that's what I would do. I wouldn't... I've never taken a Node.js app and put in Let's Encrypt support into the app itself.
1: I don't know about you. What yes, do you thought? No, definitely, yeah. yeah all, all these, you know, how sidecar movement when you have your service mesh in front of your application to the couple common patterns and, you know, make your application slim and, you know, focus it on your business are great. So definitely use, you know, a proxy and make it smart enough and to own the TLS certification.
0: Yeah. What do you guys normally recommend as a tool to use to spin up Docker machines when you need more nodes in an infrastructure as code sort of deal Ansible and the like seems a bit overkill?
1: What do you think? Hmm, um, that's a good question. <laughs> it really I, depends on where, yeah, where you, where you are, and if you are in a, you know, CI environment, and you have like deep like, um, Jenkins script, you can use that, or what well, I can suggest.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I have mixed feelings on this. I used to recommend, you know, hey, look, if you're just one person and you're a solo solo DevOps person, solo sysadmin and you don't have a lot of requirements for exactly how your systems have to run, then Docker machine. But Docker machine has limited it's not getting new features. It's not that it's not supported anymore. They still add fi- fixes. It's uh, the community's gotten a little confused about that because there was a, an erroneous post a year or two ago that was misstating that Docker machine was end of life, but it, it isn't, it's no longer shipped now. I think it's no longer shipped with Docker desktop. So I generally d- would only use it for learning and playing around. But if you're going to do infrastructure as code in production, like if you're, that's what you're talking about here. I would absolutely use a tool like Ansible, maybe not Ansible though, maybe just cloud formation, or if you're stuck on a, I wouldn't say stuck. If you're lucky enough <laughs> to use just one cloud, which, you know, everybody seems to want to use multi-cloud nowadays, but using one is hard enough. Just use their tools if you don't want. Like if you're on AWS, you use cloud formation. Just write a YAML file. And you know, I, I tend to use auto-scaling groups in AWS. So I would make the machine that I like and I'd create an AMI from it, and then I would auto-scale that if I needed it using Amazon's built-in tools, which you can all do in cloud formation and you If you don't want to have to learn another tool like Terraform or Ansible or something like that, but I don't know that there's a tool as easy as Docker Machine that does production quality servers because Docker Machine, you know, you can't choose. It's not. It's. I think it's limited to the OSs that you can use, and you can't exactly do things like install other things on your machine, right? It only does Docker. It only. It only installs Docker. So if you need anything else on there from a security perspective, you know. You can't. It's, it's hard to do that.
1: You can't. Yeah, ins- I also suggest to you to to have to have a look at cloud in it or uh, initializer or whatever. I at Influx we have a SaaS called Infl- Influx Cloud when we devel- when we serve InfluxDB when we, when we sell InfluxDB as a service, and uh, it's all based on cloud in So even if we spin up like continuously, ACU, uh, like really a lot of them. We don't use provisioning tools everything is just in the cloud in and it's a, it's an immutable you know mindset so when something goes, needs to change we replace it and the cloud init scripts do uh, whatever needs to be done uh, so it installs dockers it even installs and join kubernetes clusters kubernetes nodes with the master and so as has brett suggested with the cloud Init has, at the end uh, it's probably one of the like best workflow in terms of simplicity and efficiency, so use whatever like whatever tools your provider gives you, or worst case, you or even best case, whatever uh, you can use Terraform because it works across providers, and you can always write the one that fits your needs if you don't have one available, and you know create your autoscalers or whatever they are called in your environment, and use a tiny clouding scripts to. Make the final steps to what you are looking for. Even if it is installing Docker or installing Docker and installing Kubernetes and joining Kubernetes, or even just downloading old fancy MySQL daemon and starting. You don't really need Ansible for those if your application is easy enough.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I should say is that. Uh, unless this is just a personal project, the last thing I'll say here is infrastructure as code. You want to use a tool that everyone else is using because you know one of the things around DevOps is that you know cross training, getting other people in your team to uh, be able to easily understand your workflow and the tools you're using from you know the repos. You're, I mean, because if infrastructure as code, presumably it's in Git and it is in something like GitHub or Bitbucket or something. So you you don't necessarily want to go after some obscure tool out there that, you know, might work, but only a few people are using, because that's going to make it much harder for you to collaborate in your team, for you to have a replacement. It may take over your job so that you can do something cooler or funner, whatever. I'm I'm always concerned about that with the projects I'm on is when I leave or when they no longer want to pay me, what, you know, who's going to take this over and how can we have a continuity of service? So tools like Ansible CloudFormation, Terraform, those tools are very popular. I'd say that probably at this point, uh, tools like Chef and Puppet, while they had their day, I I don't personally see them a lot in container-focused projects. Uh, Not that they're not great tools for infrastructure, but I would say those are more complicated to to deal with and a little bit harder. And of course, I might be dating myself because it's been years since I've really used them. A little bit harder to do pure infrastructure as code with them without setting up infrastructure to manage the infrastructure. So I think, I don't know. I think, I really think that at the end of the day, like the simplest thing you can do is whatever cloud you're on, use their built-in tools if you if you want. Like everybody has them, all of the clouds have them. And if you just don't want to have to learn another one, that would be what I'd do. There, there's a good question on does Kube, while well, we talked about Compose a little bit earlier, does Kubes use a Compose file like the one in Swarm? It can with a Docker project called Compose on Kubernetes. Have you used this before?
1: I saw it, but I never used it.
0: Yeah. No. Well, you're technically uh, we can all use it. So if you have Docker Desktop installed, which someone asked if you have Docker Desktop for Linux, that so that doesn't exist. Mostly Docker's response to that is that there is very few people that, on Linux requesting Docker Desktop in terms of scaling to the millions of people on Windows and Mac. So Windows is by far the most popular developer platform. Like when I take my look at my core statistics you know, way more than 50% of the people taking my courses are on windows and that's over a hundred thousand people. So I feel like it's, you know, I got a good, I got a good survey there of the people taking the courses and, they're, and the majority of them are on windows. So if you presume that that's the same thing for Docker desktop, then the, the percentage of Docker people, Docker desktop people that would be on Linux would be less than 10% of the total. So that's a, not a lot of users to create a whole, no pro, a whole new product for, but Hey, there's, a lot of it's open source, so you could you could work on something. All right, so the, the kube on compose thing. So this is a repo called compose on Kubernetes, and it's built into your Docker desktop. That's why I was mentioning Docker desktop. It's already an on, so you can technically use docker stack deploy, dash dash, I think it's orchestrator equals Kubernetes or something like that. And you can deploy a compose file to a Kubernetes cluster on your local machine if you have Kubernetes enabled. You can also now deploy this tool into a Kubernetes cluster. And it essentially, when you use the Docker commands, will take that compose file, translate it into Kubernetes API resource specifics and implement it. Now, the, the positive here is that it allows you to have one single file for dev test and prod if you use all the Docker tooling. This is also enabled, I believe by default in a Docker enterprise setup. So if you're using Docker enterprise, you get this out of the box. The negative is that obviously it's compose. So it doesn't support every possible thing that Kubernetes supports because, you know, typically my Compose files are one-third or one-fourth the size of the Kubernetes manifests. Uh, I don't know if that's your experience, but they're smaller, which means that they're going to support less. So not all the features are there.
1: Yeah, I never use it. I remember when they presented it at DockerCon, it was, the, the audience was very, like, happy about it. And I think it's, there are so many Docker Compose files around that it, it's good to have an easy way to try them on Kubernetes. But I'm not sure if in long, long running, you know, you can always um, write Docker Compose, apply it uh, in this way and export it back when you are confident enough about your your Kubernetes skills. Yeah, That's maybe another way to go. The next question. Service
0: meshes are a hot topic. Do you see them being built into orchestrators? No unless you're talking about distributions so this gets into the conversation i think around what is kubernetes vanilla upstream and that project you know there's tons of service meshes back in the that back 3 or 4 months ago there was like multiple service meshes being launched every month and there's no there's no you know consensus on which one is the right one because it's a high, it's a more opinionated part of the stack and i don't think there will ever be a default that everyone uses like you know we all sort of default to docker still uh, you know 80% of deployments i think at kubecon this year they said uh, are still using the docker engine that'll probably change over time but it in this case i don't think that with swarm with us i'm sorry with service meshes that we'll have that kind of consensus we probably won't have 8 or 90% of people using the same one so it would be weird to add that one of those uh to kubernete's the you know because Kubernetes is actually breaking things out. It's actually moving things out of core, like all of the you know storage plugins for all the clouds and stuff like that. So they're doing the opposite, not uh, then bundling things in. But if you start talking about distributions, just uh, you know different distri- different distributions of Kubernetes like Rancher or Docker Enterprise, those are all potentially I think going to add either a not necessarily installed out of the box, but maybe just a click button deployment, different. Service meshes, and kind of like they do with networking and other things that are pluggable into Kubernetes. In fact, I think that's part of what Rio is, which is sort
1: of a yeah, it's a Rancher lab. Yeah. Right. yeah,
0: yeah, and I believe there's a service mesh built in. Is that right? Oh, they changed their page.
1: Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah,
0: it has one built in, and it basically, I think, it, I think it has one. Built
1: I think I got. Now that I see the, the architecture, I think I'm lost.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was all the yeah, like Linkerd for service mesh and Prometheus for monitoring. So it yeah. basically bundles a lot of these add-ons on top of on your on top of your Kubernetes to make it easier for you to deploy apps as a higher, basically as a higher level of abstraction without needing to decide on every single part of your puzzle. like, You know, for ingress and like, you know things like canary deployments auto scaling. So it tries to bundle a lot of that tooling together. So I think you're gonna see more things like this, but the long answer to the question is no, I don't think.
1: It's going yeah, to I mean, to it's, Kubernetes, as has I said before, it's like it's, you need to think about it as a gateway. So you have to uh, develop your opinion and configure Kubernetes to work as best as it can work in your environment. And you will have a common API that you can leverage to build your stuff on it, but they will probably, I would never force you to use Docker as they don't force you to use NFS for storage, or they don't force you to use whatever DNS it's out there. The job for Kubernetes is to give you a gateway that you can use and an API that you can leverage. So definitely everybody at some scale will need a service mesh. So the way you inject these, service mesh concrete implementation in your environment um, may be better developed in the future. But you know with the Istio operator, there is already an inject mechanism. So it's very transparent. You don't really need to do a lot to get it running, at least injected. Obviously, keep Istio running is complicated and it's a very huge application. But at least um, injecting it has a side card for all your application, isn't that complicated. So I think they are going to get better on that side, but they are not going to give you the end tool for Service Mesh uh, ever. Right. right, right.
0: All right, I think this is going to be the last question. Uh, very specific one for you. Gianluca, I'm curious what mechanism you use with Cloud Init for Swarm and Kube join token storage and acquisition.
1: <laughs> yeah, That that's yeah. First, I think you can use whatever mechanism you use with Ansible or whatever other tools. The one we use is very raw. So we have, we cycle join token with a very short, reasonably short TTL. So the join token is, the, is a string that you have to pass from a Kubernetes node to the Kubernetes master when the node requires to join the cluster. After the join happen the token doesn't exist anymore. So we cycle those tokens and we, and we place the token in the cloud init, in the join command. And every time we spin up an Autoscaler, it uses the join token that is temporarily available. This is what we use. I think there are uh, a thousand other like way to do it probably in a even more safe or better way but for us it was the best compromise we was able to take at the time uh, you know vault is another one that you can use the HashiCorp vault it is a secret store but it requires database and needs to be up and running so uh, it requires some more effort or you can even you know if you are in a cloud provider you can probably use the encryption service in the cloud provider yeah. and you can use you know amazon has its own one and the good fact about having all those services in a cloud provider is that they, the security is way more manageable because, you know, SHU, you can attach roles to a that gives you authentication authorization on services in AWS. So you can say, let's say that you place an encrypted token um, in their vault. Your AC2 gets the authentication just for the fact, just because it has a role. So from inside the server, you can pull and decrypt the join token. But this is probably the the next version that I would like to see implemented. But for now, we have it in the cloud init. Yeah. And we just, we just be sure to have it with a reasonably short TTL. Yeah,
0: that's always tricky. Auto-rotating keys is always a, it's a project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. always a project. Another show. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, it's a great number of questions today. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thanks again, Luca, for being on the show this week. Hopefully, we will meet someday on the Alps and ski down some slopes together. Let me know. Yeah, yeah. We just had a conversation about that before the show. And and we're going to ski, not snowboard. That's specific, skiing. Yeah. And you can follow him. His Twitter handle is right below his... Smiley little face there. Mine's over here. So uh, follow us on Twitter if you want to see more stuff about Docker and containers and Kubernetes and all that stuff. And of course, you can grab all the links in the show notes in our podcast that will come out, I don't know, eventually a couple of weeks, something like that. This will be in a podcast format. You can get the show notes for that all at brettfisher.com slash podcast. And thanks again for being on the show. We'll be back next week. Have a good one. So thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.